Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. When's the last time you were in a tight spot and did you know how to respond? The thing is, when we are in personal situations where we don't know exactly how to respond, it can be difficult, it can be awkward. But when you are leading an organization or when you are representing an organization and you get to a crisis situation or you've been given the task of managing organization's reputation, it is a lot bigger of a responsibility because a lot of people's lives and a lot of people's livelihoods may be in your hands. Our guest today knows all about reputation management, crisis communication, and professional development. He's an expert in these areas, and he founded a company called Kith to help other organizations in these areas as well. He's also a keynote speaker, Wall Street Journal risk and compliance panelist, and best-selling author of a book called Critical Moments, The New Mindset of Reputation Management. He has over 25 years of global experience in managing high-stakes crises and media relations challenges for both Fortune 500 companies and winning global political campaigns. Here is Bill Coletti. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Josh, it is awesome to be here. Thanks so much. So I'd like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. So you ready for these? You betcha. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Terrific question. So a, a lesson or an experience, you know, I mean, I think that What's really a couple of things have really sort of transformed or shaped the way I I lead today is one I was at a big public relations firm. We were a small firm. We then got acquired, but the small firm took over the big firm. Um, and 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 I really learned the importance of culture. I really learned the importance of why organizations exist, who they serve. So that notion that culture matters has really been a big one for me. I think a personal you know, I went through a divorce and that really sort of transformed the way I think about myself, which absolutely transformed the way I think about um, myself as a leader. And then just sort of a depth of bigger growth in my faith. Um, so I think three, the transition from the firm, the personal process of divorce, and then what I've sort of learned from sort of other people that have been on this faith walk with me. Um, those are kind of three big marks that uh, sort of shape the way I think about leadership today different than the way I thought about it yesterday. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is thoughtful, smart, and caring. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? So if we're sitting together having this conversation, whatever the conversation is, we're sitting together having this conversation three years from now, and we are super, super happy. We're super pleased. What happened? And I think a question like that really galvanizes your thinking. And so it's, I call it, it's called the R question, the way it was presented to me. But it's at the end of a conversation or in the middle of a conversation. If you think about what the future should look like, it really crystallizes your thinking. 
What book would you recommend to leaders? You know, I think the best, so there's a lot of books out there that I really like. It's hard to narrow it down to one. I think Simon Sinek's stuff is really good. Um, I think his, his, you know, certainly his iconic book, you know, about why is probably the best. And that's the one I really like. The one I'm reading now that I think is really, really important about the way we judge people is Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, it's his new one uh, that's out. Um, and so those are, those are two, I think those are great ones um, that, I just, that I've found value in. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? It would be in a staff meeting, take five to 15 minutes, whether weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever the case may be, take a headline from the newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, or some periodical, and say, if this had happened to us, how would we respond? And so it's a simple, simple simulation exercise because most times there's a headline in the paper. It's because an organization is going through some sort of crisis. But if leaders will actually pause and reflect and say, if that had happened to us, how would we respond or could we respond? It's a great learning. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Great question. I think it is better to ask why. You know, just always being inquisitive. I like the positive of why. So I think why is always a really, really good question to ask. Now, Bill, we are here today to talk about you and your work with your organization, Kith, as well as your book, Critical Moments, The New Mindset of Reputation Management. And to start off, I'd love to hear from you about some of the more common types of critical moments that people experience in their organizations, on their teams, and in their lives. So I think it is, it's forgetting that the public, um, particularly for large corporations and corporations that are that sort of the public has an opinion of, is that they, they just misalign their behaviors with the public's expectation. And so I think that they think that, that you know, nobody's really going to find out we're doing this or that, and nobody's really going to find out about it, whether it be a data breach or sexual harassment or malfeasance, these different issues that companies have to deal with as they just think nobody will pay attention, but, but everybody's paying attention. People are paying attention now more so than they've ever paid in the past. And so I think when, when organization, what I call organizational hubris, when organizations start thinking that, you know, their actions don't matter, that's when they find they, they get themselves misaligned with the public and, and even misaligned with their own employees. So just out of curiosity, when something goes wrong inside of an organization or for an organization's customers, is it generally best for organizations to go ahead and let the public know? Or what is the best way to handle those types of situations? I think it's a general principle. Um, so I view risk which are in three separate ways. And so I view risk, what you're talking about, I, those I call those risks, three different ways. There's strategic, preventable, and external. Strategic are things that the company meant to do. We meant to close this factory, raise raise wages, raise prices, do a cha- make a change. We intentionally, strategically meant to do that for superior economic benefit. Preventable things we should have zero tolerance for, things that simply shouldn't happen. Metal shaving should not be in hamburger patties. You should not miss deadlines. So those are preventable risks. And then there's external, force majeure, weather, things like that, law enforcement, things that are kind of outside of your control. I think that the general premise was what you alluded to in your question. The general premise was that if we make a mistake, just admit it and then we'll get, then we'll go ahead and fix it. 
that's pretty good counsel. But I think specifically if it's a strategic risk, and so let's say we are a um, a small regional bank, for example, and we strategically decided to change a policy or change a procedure. People, smart people sat around a conference table and said, we want to do this or that. We want to make this strategic decision. If the public criticizes that, the response should not be to say, whoops, sorry, we didn't, you know, that's not what we meant. And we're going to, you know, apologize and go fix it. The response is, hey, we're sorry that you're confused. We didn't do a good enough job explaining it. Let's explain it. That's a strategic risk. Preventable risk is exactly what you're talking about. If we made a mistake, someone got hurt in our workplace or we lost customer data or there was some preventable error that happened, absolutely. Apologize, fix it, and get back to business as fast as you can. I make a little bit of a fine distinction between those two different types of risks. If it's strategic, we meant to do it. And just because we found out, got found out or because the public criticized us, that's not the issue. The issue is we didn't do a good enough job explaining it. Preventable, zero tolerance. We should apologize, fix it, and get out of the way. I appreciate that framework. It's a helpful way of thinking about it, coming from an expert to people who want to make sure they're doing the best in their context, but may not quite have the right answers always. Now, in the subtitle of your book, you mentioned a new mindset for reputation management. I'd like to know a little bit more about what this is and maybe how it differs from whatever the old mindset was. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the old mindset was that there was never a mindset. Uh, there wasn't one uh, at all. So the old was was really just sort of head in the sand. And there was a belief in corporations that, that you know, good reputation is just, let's just do good work. And that's all we need to do. People will figure out what we do. Or if we do bad work, people will just won't think about it. The mindset that I'm trying to articulate in the book is that reputation can be managed, is that reputation can be managed just like any other strategic asset in a company. HR, legal, janitorial, um, administrative services, sales, marketing, operations. Anything can be managed. And, you know, Peter Drucker has, has written, a, written, written a paragraph in his book about sort of how do you manage it, because any, any aspect of the organization. I believe that reputation can be managed and the mindset is really about this framework on how to think about it. And could you talk a little bit more about what that framework actually looks like? Yeah. So, you know, in the book, I talk about these four A's and the four A's of reputation management and and the birthplace of that came from the four P's of marketing. And if you're a student of marketing, you probably heard of the four P's. It's a concept from the 1960s that created the marketing, marketing mix, price, product, place, promotion. And they're pretty durable concepts around marketing. The four A's um, that I talk about is, is, you know, awareness, assessment, authority, and then ultimately action, is that I think for organizations not to make reputation, as I mentioned earlier, a byproduct, but make reputation truly something that can be managed and and a strategic asset, it really begins with this notion of awareness and the sense of self-awareness. What do we stand for? What are the issues and concerns um, that our marketplace has, that our stakeholders have. What can we learn about ourselves by doing some desk research? And that's sort of this, this concept of awareness. The next A is this notion of, ass- of, of assessment. Assessment is nothing more than asking. There's no reason why I should guess what people expect of me. 
And so we create this model of, of where do we ask our stakeholders, ask our employees, ask our key customers, ask those that may regulate us or maybe may have an, uh, a say in, in the future, ask them what they expect of us. So once we're self-aware and know what we stand for, we then go ask the marketplace um, and to do an assessment of in marketplace, including your employees, do an assessment. You can then actually get authority and to go on this journey of creating reputation management programs that are really thoughtful. And that authority is where you talk to your board of directors, you talk to your senior leadership team, you talk to the organizational, the guts of the organization. Do we have the authority to meet the needs that we understand about ourselves, but in order to meet the needs that we've assessed from the stakeholders that we've talked to. There's then in the model, and you'll see it on the cover of the book, there's a solid blue line between authority and the final step, which is action. Too often people think, well, let's just write a big check to the United Way. Let's just donate more time um, you know, to, to the, the philanthropic organization that we care to. And that's action. That's jumping to action. I think reputation builds up from the bottom you need to get permission from your organization, that authority, pause and reflect, then go on a reputation management journey or what I call leadership marketing. Is that how do you market the leadership that we're taking in a particular area um, in order to, to create a better opinion about who we are as a company different than the opinion of our brand or our product or our services that we have? So those are the four steps that I think are critical for organizations. So I want to get to that leadership marketing idea in just a second. But as we're thinking about these four steps or these four levels, first of all, you have awareness, then assessment, then authority, then action. And I'm wondering where organizations tend to be. I'm guessing if they're not thinking about it too much, they probably aren't too far along in the process. But is it safe to say that a lot of organizations are at that awareness level? Because if you have mission values and things like that, it seems like they should be pretty aware of where they are and what they stand for. Is that accurate or is that an oversimplification? No, I think that's generally accurate. I think if we even take, if we step back even another 10,000 foot and, and look at it holistically, I think mistakenly, too many companies have jumped to action. They've jumped to the top and said, let's write a check to the United Way or let's really lean in on global, you know, on climate change. Let's really lean in on LBGTQ issues and just jumping to some sort of action. So it's almost ironic. I agree with you that a lot of companies are probably at that base level. They have a little bit of self-awareness, a little bit of understanding. But even without that, I see companies just jumping up to these immediate sort of cause celebs, their employees come with a good idea and they go, and companies say, yeah, 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 we should do that. And so that's action. So I think the, the greater tragedy is that too many people decide to run a marathon on Wednesday and show up at the starting line on Saturday. And that's a really recipe for disaster. Uh, you can't do this journey unless you've taken the appropriate steps and training that's necessary. And so assuming that the organizations have gone through that process of assessment where they've asked their customers, asked their stakeholders, and asked others, and have a clear idea of how they're perceived and who they are, and they've gone through the authority level of creating programs, talking to the board and senior leadership, then you mentioned this leadership marketing. What does that look like for organizations? I'm sure it's different for different organizations, but what would that end up looking like for most organizations? Great question. So I'll just give you an example. So we worked for a, for an agricultural company. Um, and what leadership marketing, after going through this journey, what leadership marketing looked like is that they were leaders 
on areas of um, pharmaceutical use in animals. They were leaders on food safety. And so they weren't really getting credit with their stakeholders for leading on that. Their product was good. It got, you know, the service delivery was excellent. Sort of all these basic attributes of their brand worked for them, but they really weren't getting credit on things that they thought were important, which are around food safety and, and animal welfare, the broad definition. And so what we decided to do in working with them after going through the 4A journey is that we created a leadership marketing webinar series where we weren't selling product, we weren't sort of talking about features and benefits or new innovations. We were just informing our customers, not even prospects, in current, it was talking to current customers, informing them about issues around animal welfare, informing them around issues, um, you know, really about antibiotics and, and, and food safety issues uh, that are there. So really focused on educating, informing, and using their leadership as a tool to market, but not necessarily market features and benefits of their products or services, but to really market their leadership and really position them as a thought leader on those three specific topics, which were there was a vulnerability on those three, three specific topics. We then work with another company that was, you know, wanted to expand into a particular marketplace there and it was a geographic area. And so they really invested the time and effort to learn what the community needed, not hoping to get a lot of credit, but really trying to understand an area that they could make a difference in the community and in the marketplace. And they used it. They learned that it was sort of, you know, underprivileged children, particularly for veterans. And so they went on that journey and that aligned with their brand with some of the things that they were they thought was important. And so as opposed to just jumping into the first need that they see and writing a big check because they can write a check, they actually went on this journey, used their strategic assets to leadership market in the way that is most authentic to who they were. Now, as I'm hearing your explanation here, I'm hoping that a lot of listeners see the intrinsic value of that type of leadership. But do you ever get people asking, so what, how does this help my business? And if so, what would you say to them? Yeah, uh, fortunately, we get fewer and fewer. Uh, I think early on, because I think, I think people see intuitively now that you know a lot gets blamed on millennials, but I think intuitively people see that, that a millennial workforce and millennial customer consumers really want to see organizations that matter, organizations that are thoughtful and have purpose and, and organizations that have a strong reputation because I think reputation breaks ties. I do think that there are some B2B commodity businesses that are really, really reluctant and don't really see the need of this. They see that you know people need our product. We're going to provide the product. The public doesn't really know who we are. So if there is a facet, it's B2B commodities. Um, I think they're kind of some of the last to this. But ironically, I think they're also some of the most um, most progressive in the, some of their thinking are B2B commodities. That food and agriculture company I mentioned is a B2B commodities company, um, and they're really way out there uh, being, being, being very, very proactive. But yes, companies do come to us and say, well, you know, I want to talk to you, but I don't really think I need this. What would you say are some of the maybe unexpected results 
that companies have experienced as they've worked with you and your organization to have a clear understanding of who they are and clearer messages to the public? So I think there's 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 two things that they see, and that's two things that I sort of talk about as a promise of why you want to go on this go on this journey to begin with. One is you want to maintain your license to operate. So let's use Chick Fil A. You know, so Chick Fil A um, has a crystal clear mission and values around some LBGTQ issues and and what would traditionally be sort of right of center beliefs um, from a from a from a Christian standpoint. There are some markets, San Francisco, New York, and others, that gave Chick Fil A a difficult time before they expanded into those marketplaces. And so, their license to operate, their business strategy was to expand into these particular metro areas, but their their mission and values was misaligned with the local communities perceived to be misaligned, and that changed their their license to operate. So, having a strong reputation allows you to use your license to operate and grow your business as you see fit. The other aspect that it does is that you get the benefit of the doubt. So let's look at Starbucks is that, you know, Starbucks has had two issues in the past 18 months around race and managers sort of making some decisions about who should or shouldn't be in their stores. And and it just didn't really work out really well for them. The challenge was a local manager made a decision, but that is not the Starbucks that I know. So they got the benefit of the doubt and they can they were able to grow and continue to expand and people didn't really sort of attack them because they had done a good job of building this reservoir of goodwill that was there. And so they maintained their momentum and didn't get too derailed by those situations because they dealt with them crisply. They responded in a, in a, in a, in a smart way and that allowed them to be able to maintain both their license to operate, but also get the benefit of the doubt um, when they hit these reputational bumps. Now, I appreciate you mentioning those somewhat timely examples, which leads me to ask you this question. When you're looking at organizations, what do leaders sometimes get wrong when it comes to managing their reputation and crisis communications, and maybe the things that particularly bother you when you're looking from the outside? that saying nothing is really saying nothing. And by what I mean by that is that if you decide strategically to say nothing, you are saying something. By by the absence of your voice into the debate, your voice during a crisis, you have made a strategic decision. And so um, I, I think that frustrates me when companies don't really understand that. Other people are going to fill in that narrative. Other people are going to take over your voice. So the, 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 the mistaken belief is that, well, if I don't say anything, I might not help, but I won't, certainly won't hurt. That's not, a, that's not exactly accurate, and that's not the way it works. Now, as you've been sharing, you obviously know what you're talking about on this subject. What was it that led you to create your own organization to help in this area? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, you know, I'd always wanted to go on an entrepreneurial journey, so that was kind of it on its face. Um, the firm that I was with, I was at a large global public relations firm. Um, it had gone through a lot of transition. We had transitioned from a much smaller firm to now a global firm, and it just changed. And there was a necessity for change. Things were changing in me personally. And so I just needed to go on a journey. And so uh, I had one client and we were, uh, you know, $5,000 a month and we gave it a go for one year and we expanded to 
now ultimately five years and and a nice nice team of employees that work with us. You know, for me, the thing that required the most growth was that it's all, all the buck stops with me. There was no board to run it past. There was no uh, leadership team to run it up. If I thought it was a good idea and I could convince my team that it was a good idea, uh, we executed on it. So I really have, I have really enjoyed this notion of that it's all my responsibility and that we do it as a collective team um, in order to, to, to bring about change. But that was new for me. Having been a big corporate creature for a long time, it, um, uh, that was a big, big transition for me. In addition to becoming used to being the person who had the final say in matters, were there any other skill sets or, or other things you had to develop as you grew into that CEO role? So this concept that's, that's been introduced to me that I really like, it's, this, it's not the issue of how, but who. And so my job as a leader, I believe, is um, to innovate, to identify opportunities, um, marketplace gaps um, where, I, where our services can uniquely fill. When I see those, it would be really easy for me to get bogged down in how am I going to do that and how is this going to get done? And now what I've grown to think about is who is going to help me do that? Who is going to execute that on my team? As opposed to focusing on the how, I focus more on the who and making sure that I give people and put people in the position to do what they are best at in order to execute at a really, really high level and allowing me to get out of the way. Because how I do it or how it gets done is less important than who does it and executes um, the vision that I've cast. Another thing that I'm wondering is how all of the things that we've talked about today relate to a personal level, because obviously when something goes wrong in an organization, it's really important to know what to do and how to act, because a lot of people's lives are at stake. But when it comes down to a personal level, do these same principles work so that you can enact them in your own life? Yeah, you know, I, I think absolutely. I think one of the things that that um, I was I was questioned by at a, at a speech recently um, uh, it was a gentleman who was a, a psychotherapist and he was talking about personal growth and human development. And, and that was the topic that he was talking about. And he had read my book and we were talking about this notion of awareness, assessment, authority, and action. And he said, you know, that's a really similar to kind of his thought process around human development. And, and I mentioned about running a marathon, but he equated it to diet and exercise. The ability to lose weight is that you can immediately start starving yourself and that's jumping to action and immediately just doing that or lowering your calorie count. But if you haven't changed and aren't aware of the lifestyle that you live, the people that you spend time with, an assessment of, you know, can I physically do this? The authority of all the changes that are going to be necessary and then take the action. So there, yeah, there is a lot of processes that are really similar from a human development standpoint, as well as a professional and, and, and enterprise development standpoint. So I love that parallel. I haven't unpacked it completely, but it's something that I am particularly curious about. Yeah, and it's got to be kind of cool to have someone from another field of study come along and say, hey, there are some natural connections here between what you're looking at and what I see. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it, when it got sent me on this journey of, of you know, thinking about my own personal development and, 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 a, and a real focus in 2019, successful focus in 2019 around diet and exercise and sort of transforming myself. And so I've been really successful and really pleased with those results in 2019 and excited about what the future of 2020 is going to hold um, for that. 
but also about, you know, how I want to be more intentional as a leader is that I just, if I, for example, know through self-awareness that I'm not a good listener, I can't all of a sudden decide I'm going to listen better. There's a process and I, and I need to sort of take care of myself as I sort of go through that journey to becoming a better listener um, and not just sort of beat myself over the head, you know, being a better listener, but to, to take some initial steps, sort of do an assessment. What do, people, what do people really mean when they want me to be a better listener? And then begin the journey of taking some action. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. Is there anything that you would like to leave the listeners with either that we haven't had a chance to talk about or that you would like to reiterate? You know, I think it was in the rapid fire, the, the first questions at the front end is that I think specifically for crisis and specifically for this notion of reputation management, if leaders would take their head out of the sand and at a staff meeting or a brown bag lunch or whatever the venue, rip something from the headline and say, if this had happened to us, how would we respond? I think that's the simplest and best advice that I can give to an organization to help them be go on a reputational journey. And that's the first step around awareness of just what if, what would happen? Are we, re, are we ready for this? And it can be big or small and it can be, you know, lots of different aspects to it. But just to ask, are we ready um, is a very, very valuable tool. And it does, shouldn't take a lot of time. Um, at, at, at whether it's at a staff meeting, an annual meeting, whatever the case may be. But I think there's real value in asking, what if this had happened to us? Well, Bill, where can people go to learn more about you and the work that you do? So our corporate website is kith, uh, K-I-T-H dot C-O. Um, that's the best place. That's our website. You can get a hold of us there. I'm really active on LinkedIn. I try to publish an article there at least once a week. Um, and it's just Bill Coletti on LinkedIn. And then on Twitter, it's B Coletti, B-C-O-L-E-T-T-I. So those are the three big platforms. We publish blog articles, repost those over on LinkedIn, and then try to say something pithy every now and then on Twitter. Well, Bill, once again, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and for sharing your insight and expertise. It's been a pleasure. Awesome, Josh. Thank you very much. So I hope you caught a vision today of the importance of reputation management and crisis communication. Now, one thing I'm going to highlight before I get to the three key takeaways is Bill's recommendation to sit your team down and take five to 15 minutes to look at a headline and ask how you and your team would respond if that particular headline had happened to you, your team, and your organization. I think that's a great exercise to help your team begin to think around how to handle and react to crisis situations. Now, the three key takeaways for today are these. First of all, there are three types of risk. There's strategic risk, preventable risk, and external risk. Strategic risk is when you make a purposeful change and sometimes you get things wrong. It's best to own up in those situations, but when you made that risk, you knew that you were doing it for a purpose and something just didn't go how you planned. Then there's preventable risk, and that's something that should never happen. It's things that you maybe caused because you overlooked certain things and is not something that you want to happen in your organization. And finally, there are external risks, which are things that are outside of your control. The second takeaway is that reputation is not a byproduct. It's a strategic asset and it can be managed and you can manage it with the 4A framework that Bill laid out, which includes awareness, assessment, authority, and action. And action is the final step and it means that you show marketing leadership in a particular area. And finally, I appreciated Bill's 
comment at the end that as a leader, it's more important to know who will execute a task rather than how it will be executed. Make sure that you have the right people in place and don't feel the need to micromanage everything. Now we're going to start off next week with an interview with an author who's just written a book called Next Generation Leadership. He has a lot of good insight on what it looks like when the next generation of leaders, today's millennials, begin to lead in different organizations and how that will shape and change business in the future. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist... It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well. <laughs>